the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. I am Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, church questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, really whatever's on your heart. All you need to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, Tonight, I'm going to be teaching in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 7. I'm going to go all the way through chapter 8, the first six verses. Um, interesting stuff, at least to me it is. We'll find out if it is to anybody else. But that's at 7 o'clock. That can be live streamed at calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock. And then tomorrow, of course, Paula will be live in studio. In fact, tomorrow we're going to have a a gaggle of ladies who are going to be here. Uh, We're going to have the uh, speakers from the Sweet Summer Devotion Series who are going to be here, and I'm going to have a good time talking with them about some of the issues that they had. You know, we, I think we got seven or eight ladies who are coming tomorrow, and an hour is not much time to really hear from a lot of them. So uh, I'm going to be asking them the questions that are, are interesting to me, but you'll be able to call and ask them any of the questions, especially those of you out there who have tuned into the website and watched uh, what they had to say. Uh, really, really be, I hope, a, a, a good show tomorrow. So all of that's going on while we're waiting for tomorrow. Let's get busy with today. Um, Here are the questions that have come in. Our first one is from Scott from our email inbox. And he said, Pastor Ron, is the passage in Jeremiah 31, 31 and 32, revealed by Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verse 24? Scott, very um, wise. I mean, this is this is great uh, information. And the answer to your question is yes. Now, I don't like the word necessarily revealed as much as completed. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God had um, um, lots and lots of hints and and statements about Gentile inclusion about a new covenant. Let me read Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one, and then we will uh, get to this. Jeremiah 31 says, uh, this is verse 31. I, I'm going to read a little bit more, Scott, than, than just the two verses. Um, the Lord through Jeremiah says, The time is coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. And here's the key. This is the new covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor uh, or a man his brother saying, I know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty in his name. And listen to this promise. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. Now, there's a couple of things, Scott, that I think are important here. Uh, Israel, of course, was looking for a fulfillment of the old covenant. But in verse 32, he says, no, it's not going to be the same covenant. It's not going to be like the covenant I made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Uh, I led them out of Egypt, but then they sinned, and God is going to provide a covenant that can't be broken. Because it's a covenant that's not based on performance. It's a covenant that is based instead on on God's promises, God's grace. Remember, grace is unmerited favor. A Jew could never understand that, not even for a moment. And so uh, he says, I'm going to change everything. Yeah, the law is going to be on their minds, but it's going to come from their hearts, and they're going to want to do it. Now, the passage you asked about in the Gospel of Mark is when Jesus uh, institutes the sacrament of communion. And Scott, when he does that, he says, uh, picks up the cup of redemption. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. And what's important about that is he's saying the old covenant is now canceled. The covenant that stood opposed to us is now canceled. And this is a new covenant. And the new covenant, of course, is the covenant that we live in. I was talking with somebody today. They were asking me some questions about uh, um, some of the Old Testament passages. And um, the whole idea of, of, uh, of a new covenant was so foreign to Jews. And that's why God told them, I'm going to do something unlike anything you've ever heard of before. And we're living in that period of time. Daniel chapter 9, between the 69th and 70th weeks of Daniel. There's 70 weeks or 70 groups of seven years, historically, that are going to um, um, tell the story of Israel's history. And, and we know that Isaiah says that, that uh, or I'm sorry, not Isaiah, Daniel says that he will be uh, cut off. The Messiah will be cut off with nothing after 62 sevens and seven sevens, that's 69 sevens. And we're living in that cutoff time. And the new covenant, the covenant written in his blood, this covenant of grace, is the very time that we're living in. And we don't know how long it's going to be. It's been 2,000 years or thereabouts 2,000 years. We don't know how much longer it's going to be, but of course we believe that Jesus is going to come soon and there will be an end to the covenant of grace and then God will again turn his attention to Israel to fulfill all of these promises, the promises in Jeremiah. You talk about uh, dry bones coming to life again. That's what's going to happen when the Jews see Jesus in the sky and they will ask him, where did you get these wounds? This is from Zechariah. I got these wounds in the house of my friends. And uh, they will repent. Now, the, the sad news, I mean, if there is sad news there, is that individual Jews still have to make the same decision. God has a covenant with Israel. His covenant is not with individual Jews. The individual Jew still has to perform. Keep the law, keep it perfectly, not just the letter of the law, but the, the, the Sermon on the Mount indicates you've got to keep the spirit of the law, which is even more impossible. And I know there are no degrees to impossible, but, but that's the, 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 for emphasis. And um, um, that's why that covenant opposed us. 
And so in the end times, uh, he's going to come back. One third of the Jews are going to recognize him and repent. Two thirds of them, according to Zechariah, are going to continue in rebellion and they're going to perish when Jesus returns in Revelation chapter 19. So, uh, Scott, you're exactly right. I think that's really good uh, Bible study. So God bless you, my friend, and I appreciate hearing from you. Here is a question. This one comes from Janet. Um, She wants to know, does God hear my prayers as an unbeliever? Janet, first of all, let me say, I'm really sorry you're an unbeliever. Um, It seems to write a question like this. It seems as though uh, you're you're praising or, or, I mean, sorry, praying to God. And and praying to a God that you don't believe in doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. But but you might consider that the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of your heart. But the answer to your question is no, God cannot hear the prayers of an unbeliever except one. And that prayer is, God, save me a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. God is delighted to hear that prayer. And that's what the gospel is really all about. But there's no way that your prayers, and I prayed a lot as an unbeliever. I was a gambler. God, help me win this bet or help me win this razor, those kind of things. Um, But God doesn't hear those kind of prayers. We have no relationship. We have no basis upon which to approach God. The New Testament says that God lives in unapproachable light. And only those of us who are in the light can approach him in that light. And so even though we pray to God, we all instinctively aware that God is real, whatever form we believe, but we know there's something out there. Um, but the reality is um, our prayers are are silent prayers. I mean, they, they, they can't be heard because there's no basis. Jesus opened the door to access to God, the Father. And the only way that we can be heard in heaven is for our prayers to come from a righteous heart. By that I mean a, a heart that's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. As a believer, God hears your prayers. If you're a parent, Janet, um, you know you you wouldn't hear uh, the 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 kid uh, two blocks away from you who belongs to somebody you don't know. You wouldn't hear that person crying out for help. But if you're a parent and the children in your own home are crying out for help because of your relationship with them, you'd be able to hear them. The problem is you have to have that relationship. And that's the same thing that we have with the Father in heaven. He hears our prayers if our prayers are prayers offered in the name of Jesus. And I don't mean that as a formula. I mean that as 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 who Jesus is and what he's done for us has opened that access. And then when we are believers, Janet, all we have to do, all we have to do is let our needs be known with grateful heart. And God will hear our prayers. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to answer our prayers the way we want them answered. It means that he can, but sometimes he answers no. Sometimes he answers wait or not now. But he hears the prayers of unbelievers. Uh, I'm sorry, of believers. He cannot hear the prayers of unbelievers. So, Janet, the solution for you is simple. Get saved. And I would ask you to consider, why would you be praying to a God first you don't believe in? And then I would wonder if maybe that's just something that's telling me this instinct I have that there's a God out there is compelling me to find out who he is. And I would suggest to you, Janet, that Jesus Christ is that God. He proved he was God. He said he was God. He proved he was God. They killed him. He didn't stay dead. He's alive. He's changed the world. Um, just unbelievably so. And all we have to do is look around and see that he's real. So, Janet, he died for your sins. He sent his son. Jesus died for your sins so that you could say, Father, please forgive me. I'm a sinner. I don't want to sin anymore. I need your help. And then you give him control of your life. That's what it means to be born again. 
So I hope soon, Janet, God will hear your prayers. And he can. You just have to have a relationship in order to do that. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question uh, anonymously. Um, Pastor Ron, what role does foreknowledge play in predestination like in Romans 8.29? Anonymous, this is really an important question. You know, people get really too complex with the idea of predestination. We've got two instances in the New Testament that give us specifically the role that foreknowledge plays. Uh, Romans 8.29, as you suggested, uh, but also First Peter chapter 1, the first two verses, um, to God's elect, those chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. In other words, God knows ahead of time who is going to be his, and God then sets his love upon those people waiting for that moment where they surrender their heart to him. Now, Anonymous, Romans 8.29 is very, very personal for me. And it's personal for me because uh, as a new believer, I'm reading that passage of Scripture. And God impacted my heart. Uh, it was like a, 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 an 8.0 earthquake at the time. He, he impacted my heart. And here's how he did it. He said, you know what that means, Ron? It means that I set my love upon you in eternity past because I knew you were going to be mine. I set my love upon you in eternity past. And nothing you could do could ever have changed my mind. And believe me, Anonymous, I tried to change God's mind a bunch because I didn't care. I didn't want anything to do with God if he was real. And yet, no matter what I did, no matter what I said, God set his love upon me. You talk about a loving, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger God. That's what Romans 8.29 is. He just loved me no matter what. And I always tell people that when I talk about Romans 8.29 because I want them to understand it doesn't matter what you've done. If you're going to be a believer, God's love is set upon you. And that means that love is available to everybody. But foreknowledge simply means God determines or predetermines who are going to be his by the choice he knows they're going to make. And I've heard theologians get really complicated with it and say, well, it's not that easy. But if you understand the Bible, you interpret the Bible with the Bible, uh, it really is that easy. It's that simple. And there's no trick about it. Uh, there's, there's nothing more complicated than that. I think sometimes we who consider ourselves theologian or Bible teachers, uh, we like to make things a lot more difficult than they are. And I think one of the things that I do reasonably well, Anonymous, is I keep things pretty simple. And that's the way it is. If God didn't make it simple, um, it'd been way over my head. So he made it really, really simple. You know, I remember J. Vernon McGee, who was a brilliant man. I, I, because of his accent, because he sounds like a hillbilly, um, he doesn't get credit for the theologian that he was. Uh, and, and his Through the Bible radio series, which has been on forever, um, um, I mean, he's going through the Bible, and and he's doing it simply. So he never gets credit for the intellect that he had or, or his scholarly approach to the Scriptures. But he had the gift of simplicity. He used to say, and I remember that voice, I can't do impressions, but he used to say, he said, you know, I put the cookies on the shelf where the kids can get them. And that's what he did so well. And being simple and, and declaring the truth of God and keeping it simple is truly a gift, a gift that uh, I, I believe in some small portion compared to somebody like J. Vernon McGee. Uh, but I believe it's a gift that God has given me, uh, and it's a gift that I want to pursue. And the older I get, frankly, uh, the more um, simple I make things. Things aren't as complicated. I don't need to tell everybody how smart I think I am. All I have to do is declare God's Word very simply. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Tracy from our email inbox. She says, and it's spelled with an I on the end, so this is a she. If I was baptized as a pre-10 and then 
a preteen rather, and then went to live a life away from Jesus for decades, should I be baptized again now that as an adult and with full understanding came to Jesus? Thank you. Tracy, the answer is yes, of course you should. Uh, a preteen who knew what you understood, uh, clearly we know that your commitment wasn't there. So doing something with a sincere heart, a genuine heart, uh, being obedient, um, certainly the answer is yes, you should be baptized again, not to get saved. Remember, baptism is a public profession of our faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's the announcement to the world and to the angels who long to look into these things. It's a public pronouncement that, that the old Tracy is dead. That's what symbolized by going uh, under the water. And then when you come up out of the wander, that's a profession that says a new Tracy has been born again. And since you've lived away from the Lord for decades, uh, it's clear that a new Tracy had to be born again. And now that you are, uh, and now that you have an understanding, this is something that you ought to do. And I applaud you for asking the question. Again, it's not to get saved, Tracy. It's because you are saved. And with a grateful heart, you have a unique perspective from which to praise God for his patience with you. And uh, boy, you know, she, in your case, who has been forgiven much, loves much. And this just ought to set your heart on fire for Jesus Christ. Great question, Tracy. And I'm really, really thrilled that you are you are at that place in your life, in your walk. DJ says, what is your take on the Ark and Ken Ham? Um, you know, Ken Ham gets a lot of grief from people uh, who consider themselves really, really smart. Um, um, but I find Ken Ham not only delightful, um, but but I can't find any fault in the conclusions that he comes to. Um, I, I think Ken Ham has done a wonderful thing for um, the church, the, the, the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. Uh, I think it is it is based on the scholarship that he's done. I think uh, um, uh, an accurate representation of what the ark looked like, the size it was, and I think when people see it, they get a, a, a perspective on the flood of Noah that uh, the, that you don't just get or understand when you're reading through the Bible. So uh, I find Ken Ham to be very very credible. Um, and he's also pretty entertaining, which always helps. Um, but but the scholarship, I think, is really, really solid. He is a, an orthodox, fundamental believer. And, um, you know, the, the, the people that don't seem to like him are people who are always looking for um, um, the, the, the scriptures to be subjective rather than objective. And that's the case. Now, I've not been to the Ark Encounter myself, DJ. Uh, we've had a lot of people from our church who have gone, and every single one of them came back uh, really, really blessed by the experience. So uh, I'm not a traveler. I don't like to travel. So it is unlikely that Paul and I are going to go see uh, the Ark Encounter. However, I am thrilled with the effect that it's had on the people from our church who have gone. I also think, DJ, with, with especially for, for people with kids in public schools, taking your children and letting them see it and see that, that see it is possible to look at Genesis, Genesis literally. It's possible to be a really smart guy and come to the conclusions that in the beginning, God, uh, I think it's a, 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 a real blessing to the Church of Jesus Christ. So uh, I have nothing but positives to say about it. Uh, I appreciate any scholar who stands up these days and says that Genesis is to be read and understood literally especially the first 11 chapters, um, because they don't understand the consequences of believing that those chapters are not to be taken literally. And uh, I, I don't, uh, um, I mean, it's just, I think people like Ken Ham are doing a wonderful job of that. And, and, and you know, DJ, when you stand firm, 
for Jesus Christ, when you stand firm for the veracity of the the, the scriptures that we've been blessed with by the Lord, uh, you're going to have people who come against you. You're going to have people wanting to argue and wanting to debate. Now, Ken Ham is willing to debate, but but uh, he is, I think, doing a, a wonderful service uh, for the Lord and for the Church of Jesus Christ. So that's my take on the Ark and Ken Ham. Now, I don't have time to get to another question before the break, but let me just say, I want to expand just a little bit on uh, what I said about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. If Genesis is not literally true, um, then we've lost our faith. And by that I mean we have no original sin, one of the essential doctrines of the historic Christian faith. It blows away because if if, if Adam and Eve weren't real, then we didn't inherit, as Romans says, from our federal head Adam, we didn't inherit a sin nature. If Genesis isn't true, if more specifically, specifically, if Adam and Eve weren't the first two human beings on earth and they were created by God perfectly, then Jesus is a liar. Because he said in the beginning God created them male and female. He believed in Adam and Eve. And if Jesus is a liar, we're not saved. So that's why it's so important. And I'd like people to read a little more critically. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left. We'd love your phone calls, 210-340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You know, I timed that break. We're supposed to have two minutes. That was one minute. I know it was one minute. That's how fast that that break goes. I'm trying to get a drink of water. It's time to come back on the air. Let's go to a question, Anonymous. Now, this is a question I get fairly frequently, and I still don't understand it. This is, why would God create people he knew were going to go to hell? Anonymous, I, 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 I really don't understand the question. Um, God doesn't create anybody. He created Adam and he created Eve. And everybody else who's ever been on this earth was a product of the process God used to be fruitful and multiply. And that's, of course, a man and a woman coming together, having sex and having babies. And the reason God allowed those people to be born is what I guess you're asking. The reason he allowed them to be uh, born is because God doesn't kill babies. Why should God stop it? God gives people a long life, 70, 80, 90 years. And that's the general rule. And, and, And in those 70, 80, or 90 years, everybody has a choice of where they want to spend forever. And for God to say, oh, well, I know. And remember, God does know. We had that question in the first half of the program. Um, God says, well, I know that person's not going to be a believer, so I'm just going to I'm gonna kill him in the womb or kill her in the womb. God doesn't do abortions. And so people are born, and then they're accountable for the choice that they make. Now, the other thing to consider here is that God allows many unbelievers the opportunity to live very, very significant lives. Unbelievers have have found cures for diseases. Unbelievers have done wonderful things for the world. Uh, unbelievers have, have uh, just all the opportunities that everybody else has to make the right choices, and God simply doesn't kill them or prevent them from being born because they're they're not going to spend forever. The, the, the sun rises on the just and the unjust alike. 
Um, the rain falls. Good things and bad things happen. In fact, we, we call that, the theological term is common grace. Uh, God's grace to live uh, falls on everybody. And we can look at some people who are unbelievers, some of them hardcore unbelievers, and yet they live good, productive, and fruitful lives. Now, too much is given, much is required, and uh, they're, they're going to be punished uh, in eternity for rejecting the one who gave them the ability to do the things that they do. And yet we still know, Anonymous, that many people who we look at and we think, wow, they're so successful and they, they have everything in the world. And yet they're miserable people. They're filled. Their lives are filled with pain. And they marry and remarry over and over and over. And and they're looking for the, the old country song, looking for love in all the wrong places without ever finding it. Others commit suicide or they live very depressed and, and empty lives. And they try to, to drown the emptiness with drugs and alcohol. So God is knocking on the door of the heart and telling them there's more out there. They're just not listening. But it, it would certainly not be a just God or a, or a fair God who would just keep them from being um, from being born. So um got to keep in mind, when we talk about God creating people, uh, he really only created two uh, by his direct hand, his direct touch. And um, uh, that's uh, everybody else is a product of the process uh, biologically. Dale wants to know, is Calvary Chapel Calvinist? Dale, no, no, a thousand times no, we're not. Now, one of the problems that we have when people ask questions like this, they, oh, you're not Calvinist, you're Armenius. No, no, a thousand times no. We're, we teach the Bible. The balance in the Bible is where the truth is. Extremes. Calvinism is an extreme. Armenianism is an extreme. And you don't have to be one or the other. But in the middle... It's where we're going to find the truth. And the middle is, yes, we are chosen by God, but we have to choose God as well. We have been given a free will. And and Jesus died for the sins of the world, and everyone who believes will be saved and have eternal life. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, if you're going to look at those verses through the lens of the extremes, then you're going to come up with these silly ideas. And Calvinism is silly. It just is. Uh, to believe that God picks some for heaven and some for hell, that Jesus didn't die for the whole world. He only died for the sins of the elect, that God's will or God's grace is irresistible, meaning that, that if God wants something, it's going to happen. Um, I, I mean, all we have to do is look at the world we live in. And we know those things are simply not true. And so, uh, Dale, we are neither Arminianist or Calvinist, um, but, but as I say to our church all the time, the truth is in the middle, the truth is in the balance, and all we have to do is reconcile those two extremes. That's all. An extreme is an overreaction. Uh, you know, we Calvinism, Calvinists, um, they, they, they get pretty arrogant about their 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 systematic theology. They um, believe that because they were chosen, there was something special about them instead of realizing that um, the only special comes from being chosen by God. Uh, and, and Calvinists like to have these little neat packages to tie things up in. So if something really bad happens, it's, well, it's the will of God. You can't argue with the will of God. His ways are not our ways. Uh, but that is it's almost sophomoric in terms of its approach to explaining these things. So, Dale, I hope that answers your question. We are not Calvinists at all, and uh, proud to say that. Here's another anonymous question, similar to one just before the last one. Uh, why doesn't God keep people from dying unexpectedly like in accidents? Well, first of all, anonymous, there is no unexpected death. In from God's point of view. God knows everything that's going to happen. God knows exactly the time that you're going to die. Now, he doesn't cause it to happen. That's really important. 
God doesn't cause it to happen, but God knows when it's going to happen. So God's never caught off guard. Um, he, he's never surprised by anything. So here's what I can tell you. When somebody dies from our perspective prematurely in an accident, that person had every opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if they didn't, uh, we tell people all the time, you know, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Jesus could come back tonight. Uh, We could die in our sleep tonight. And we're not guaranteed anything. Uh, And that's why we tell people, the Apostle Paul, I'll quote him. He said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. And everybody thinks there's always more time. I don't have to make a decision now. But the reality is, uh, is that, that the urgency is always for now. So God doesn't keep people from dying uh, in accidents. Um, that's not what God does. Uh, I know we think we should be shielded from bad things happening. But we live in a fallen world and these bad things happen all the time. And what what the Lord would want me to say, I think, to all of you who are going through um, the grief from losing somebody suddenly, is that he will be with you. He gets you. He understands your pain. And he'll be with you in your grief. We grieve as Christians, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. But, but the, the reason that we can say that is because Jesus is there with us. And he understands grief. He was a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief, we're told. And so um, it's not his role to keep bad things from happening. Now, one day that will be his role, and that's going to happen when Jesus returns. But until that time, we're going to live in a world that is overrun by death, overrun by evil. And our job is to be out sharing Jesus with the people uh, in this world. Uh, who are suffering from those things. But anonymous, again, there's no accident, there's no unexpectedly when it comes to the Lord. We're on, we get caught off guard. Um, stay close to Jesus and you'll, you will experience his presence with you in the middle of your grief. Now let me just say this. I'm accused at times of people saying that I'm just giving Christian platitudes to people who are really, really hurting. I'm not giving Christian platitudes at all. I'm trying to give them Christ because he is the God of all comfort and there's no other source of comfort. He is the only one that can provide a peace that passes understanding. He's the only one that can take our grief and make beauty from the ashes of that grief. So what we need to do is get so close to him that in those times when we are grieving and believe me everybody in this world suffers loss everybody in this world grieves over over things um, but but we want to know that Jesus is with us in the middle of our grief hope that helps here's a question from January um, she wants to know how is it possible for a real Christian to be pro-choice um, January, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think it is possible. Um, I think somebody who says, well, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm pro-choice, uh, is saying I'm a Christian, but I'm okay with killing babies. And, and that's certainly not a, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Um, not, not at all. And, and I, think, I think those people can fool themselves into thinking that they're still saved. Um, I would suggest that they never were saved if they can have that kind of a position at all. Now, I understand a little bit better, January, um, why a Christian might vote for a candidate who's pro-choice. We got elections coming up, and um, I, I mean, personally, I don't, I don't get it, but. Um, they might value social issues that they consider uh, important, um, um, more important than, than, than the murder of babies. I don't know. But a, for, for a Christian to say, I am a, an abortion supporter, they won't say that. They'll use the term pro-choice. But, but I would like somebody to say, I'm a Christian and I believe that killing babies is the right of the mother. 
um, but they won't be that honest. I don't think that person can really be a believer. And, you know, I've had people challenge me on that. I've had people get angry at me for saying that. Um, but uh, I, I would, I would, I don't know how they could justify to anybody, let alone to the Lord himself, um, being a supporter, a proponent of the murder of the unborn. And for the person who says, well, well, we just don't believe life begins at conception. Well, they've just told you they don't believe in what the Bible says. David said, God, you conceived me. You knew me when you conceived me. And I was sinful then at birth in my mother's womb. But you knew everything about me. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. That's at the hand of God. So these are the things, January, that that we would have to engage them in conversation with. And uh, I find typically that when you put it in black and white, you, a professing Christian, say you're supportive of killing babies in the womb. Um, That's when the conversation ends because they don't have a response to that. So you pray for those people. And if you are encountering somebody who says they are a Christian, but they are pro-choice, um, it, it's simply not possible. It simply isn't possible. Nobody's ever been able to give me a, 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 a an argument that made any sense at all how a Christian could be supportive of murdering babies. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Victor says. Which of the 12 tribes of Israel have morphed into the 10 lost tribes? I like the way you put that, Victor. They morphed into the 10 lost tribes. Um, none of them. You see, none of the tribes are lost. All this historical nonsense, the 10 lost tribes, they weren't lost. They were overwhelmed by Assyria, the 10 northern tribes. They were defeated militarily, and they basically were bred out of existence when you read in the New Testament about Samaritans and Jews hating Samaritans, um, they hated they hated them because they considered them half-breeds because what the Assyrians did when they took over uh, uh, foreign peoples, they, they intermarried with them. Um, they, they literally bred them out of existence, and that's why they were so offensive to Jews. But, but, Victor, don't listen to this nonsense about ten lost tribes. Don't listen to... Um, you know, those who will say, well, I'm a Sephardic Jew. I come from one of the lost tribes. It's simply not true. God knows where all of the tribes are. We're going to see them all tribe by tribe in the book of Revelation. We're going to see their descendants, um, 144,000 witnesses, uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So God has not lost anybody. He will never lose anybody. He knows exactly where they are. And uh, believe me, when it comes time for uh, the Great Tribulation, he's going to have no problem at all rounding up the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, It's it's another one of those things that's difficult for me to understand um, just logically or practically how anybody could think there's 10 lost tribes. I just... They scattered, Jews scattered all over the earth, but but God knows where they all are. Mark wants to know, I have another predestination question, but I'll save that for Friday because I don't want to keep saying the same things. This is from Mark. Um, Pastor Ron, at what age does a child become accountable? Mark, we don't know. I really don't know. Um, I, th- I think the age of accountability is different for all of them. It's been suggested that because Jewish boys were bar mitzvahed at 12 years of age, that's the age of accountability. That was when they were, were considered to be adults. But but the reality is we see people at different ages with different levels of accountability, different levels of intellect, different levels of, of uh, mental or emotional uh, readiness or challenges. Um, so, so it's different with everybody. And, um, you know, the one thing that we need to remember is God knows everything about people. 
So he knows when we're accountable, and we don't need to know. You know, we're to raise up our children the way they should go so that in the end they won't depart. Uh, And I think a lot of us as parents, we're not doing that job. I did not do that job with my children because I was an unbeliever when they were being raised. But um, they're accountable, uh, and God knows when they're accountable. I've got kids in this church who, um, I've got one young man, you know, from the time he was like four years old. He's asking me questions that really stumped me. Um, He knows. God's given him a, a magnificent brain, and he asks these questions. He thinks about things very, very deeply. And believe me, that young man is accountable to the Lord, and he was accountable when he was four and five years old. Uh, I've got other people that that you, you look at them in high school, and you can knock, but nobody's home. I mean, it's just it's just like they're oblivious to the things of God, um, and and you know they're they're not, I think, not yet accountable. Um, so so the 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 spectrum, Mark, uh, is all over the place, and that's that's all I can say. There's just no one size fits all. Um, approach to accountability. God knows, and we've got to be okay with what he knows. Freddie asks, um, do you think, no, he says, why do you think altar calls are biblical? Um, Freddie, the the whole Bible uh, is filled with invitations, uh, invitations to believe. Abraham um, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, but God had asked him to believe. These things matter a great deal. So um, invitations are part of the experience in our relationship with God. Uh, Joshua said, choose this day who you will serve. And then he concluded, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, but you've got to make your own choice. So invitations are always Paul is asking people uh, by invitation to believe. And and they can mock him and they can procrastinate. Uh, Felix and Festus are good examples. Uh, but but they're, they're, they're invited to come. Jesus issued an invitation. I always picture Jesus with his arms open saying, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Um, that's an invitation to come. The gospel itself implies an invitation. And when we go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've got to ask people if they want to surrender their heart to Jesus Christ. So, um, Clearly, altar calls or invitations in services are not contrary to what the Bible teaches. You won't see um, um, an example in the Bible where somebody does an altar call, uh, for example, the way I do. And every time I preach, every time I preach, I I give an invitation. Uh, It doesn't matter whether it's here or in somebody else's church if I'm invited to speak or at a conference. Every time I speak. Um, I'm going to give people an opportunity to get saved. And and um, so they're not unbiblical at all. And, and they are consistent, Freddie, with um, the, the tenor of Scripture, uh, which is always inviting people to come to Jesus. So, yes, they are biblical in the sense that they don't oppose what Scripture says, I think they are also necessary. Um, I realize they make people uncomfortable. I additionally realize that people who um, are so-called growth experts or marketing experts for churches say that there's something that you just shouldn't do. Um, as for me, I'm going to listen to the Holy Spirit rather than listening to them. And frankly, I don't care if people are uncomfortable. I think there there's a, a, a bit of discomfort that's necessary when the Holy Spirit is convicting us of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And I think that, that tension, that angst that happens when I'm giving an invitation, sometimes the, the air is so thick you can cut it with a knife. There's sometimes I can see people squirming. Uh, I think that's built in to the presentation of the gospel and teaching the Word of God uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, I think that's intentional, 
God wants to make them uncomfortable, to make them aware that they are separated from him. So hope that matters. Uh, here's one I can do very quickly. This one is from Scott. What is Calvary Chapel's position on inerrancy? Scott, we believe the Bible is infallible. It is inerrant. It is perfect. And it is the word of God from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. Um, uh, it is to be read literally uh, understood literally whenever possible. And in those instances where you cannot take it literally, um, it is clear that the Bible is speaking symbolically about certain things. So we believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, perfect word of God. And we believe that there is enough manuscript evidence to demonstrate that the original autographs can be recreated and we have that manuscript evidence. Uh, and so uh, we have no doubt that the, the, the Bible is something that is written by God, given from God, and is something that can be counted on at all times. Um, and I think, as I often say in this program, Scott, um, for me personally, the most important issue that a Christian can wrestle with is that of the inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture. You've got to find out for yourself. People don't listen to me. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Remember, Paula with the ladies from the Sweet Summer Devotions tomorrow on AM 630 Word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.